0: Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello,
1: and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you, to help you understand your money better, to help you understand the stock market and look at legislation that might be impacting your money, to understand financial planning topics, and then finally to have the opportunity to ask questions in the Ask Peggy segment of the show. So to ask me questions, you can go to my website, peggydoviak.com, and Type a question in, and then if I can answer it on the air, I'll contact you, probably get some more information, or you can submit a question to my Facebook page, which is also Ask Peggy. So let's get started. This data is for the week ending October 6th, 2018, and for that week, the markets all ended a little bit down. The Dow is down 0.04%, so really basically flat. S&P 500 down just a little less than 1%. The NASDAQ was the biggest loser, down 3.21%. Gold was down 0.88%. The only winner of the week was oil, which is up almost another percent. So why do the markets go down this week? I think it's a couple of things. Number one, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, came out and talked about how he believes that we're not anywhere close to being done raising interest rates. And he thinks that the economy is actually so good that we will be continuing to raise interest rates on a regular succession. But remember, this is not the first time he's told us this. He told us this back in June. If you were listening to the show then, I was actually really excited because what I liked about what he did then was he was very clear. And again, he said the economy is good, and he gave his schedule for raising rates. And at that point, if you were paying attention, it was obvious we were nowhere close to done. But when he said it again last week, the markets went, "Ah," and they dropped again because I guess they thought he didn't mean it in June. However, they didn't drop a lot. The NASDAQ's drop was, I really think, over some individual stock issues that it's having. And remember, the NASDAQ has gone up so much that if there is a little bit of a hiccup, it's going to go down by more than the markets that, although everything's gone up a lot, the NASDAQ has gone up more. So if there is any form of a miniature correction, the NASDAQ's going to get hit a little bit harder. We also cannot forget that it is the first week of a new quarter. And many times I've noticed that the first week, the first couple of weeks of a new quarter, There might be some selling. Typically, at the beginning of the quarter, you'll see the rebalancing, mostly because when um, financial advisors have to report their numbers, they usually report performance at the end of the calendar quarter. So, if they need to rebalance and make some adjustments to the portfolio, they'll wait and do it at the beginning of the next quarter so that it has the entire quarter to go ahead and adjust and move the direction they're thinking it will move, rather than making a move right at the last minute potentially being wrong and having no time for course correction. Because sometimes you're not wrong, but you're early. And if you're early at the wrong point, you cannot see the results you're expecting to see. So I don't think there's anything really exciting about this. The markets were just down a little bit for the week. I don't really think it's setting a trend. No doubt we always watch this, but if I see anything interesting, I'll let you know on a future show.
0: Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance.
1: Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and today I have a good news, bad news report. So we'll start with the bad news because I'd really like to end this section on good news. There is a plan in the works right now from Finra. Now, remember that Finra is the regulating agencies of broker dealers or stockbrokers. Now, in truth, everyone in financial services has a Finra registration, but Finra's main area of regulation is in brokers. And one of the arguments that people have made, and there is quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of validity to it is that when you work for a brokerage firm, that brokerage firm is reviewing your activities, they're reviewing your trades, they're keeping up with what you're doing outside of the business to be sure that you're acting ethically. So, you know, if actually they would put a fiduciary layer on top of that, it'd be really good. Because on the broker-dealer side of the financial world, there is more of a hierarchy. On the investment advisory side of the firm, each investment advisor firm is regulated. They're either regulated by the state or the feds, depending upon how much money they manage. But most of the day-to-day compliance is done in-house. And then the regulators come in and they do periodic audits. There might be a letter audit that everyone who's an investment advisor receives For instance, two or three years ago now, I had a letter audit where every investment advisor in the state of Oklahoma received a letter asking how many privately held REITs they had, you know, the the real estate investment trust that didn't publicly trade that really blew up when real estate blew up. So there was just a letter audit of everybody whose firm was an investment advisor in the state. And we had to say, you know, how much of that had we sold and how much of it was held in our client accounts? You answer the questions, you send it back, that's the end of it. The other type of audit is where they actually come into the office and they request a list of documents. And it's very exhaustive. I mean, they look at everything. So so the regulation is good. But the broker-dealer side has actually had third-party because most individual firms are not also their own broker-dealers. So there's this third-party firm that's overseeing what they do. So what's happened with the latest bright idea is FINRA is saying that they think they no longer need to look at um, their outside work. So more to quote the proposed eliminating all the supervision requirements for registered reps outside business activities, including any record keeping. So what this does is it lets the broker-dealer firm off the hook from keeping up with the outside activity of the ind- individual brokers. So you have the broker who has an office, you have that broker's broker dealer, which is um, the platform that they're underneath, and then over that is FINRA. So FINRA is telling the broker dealers that they no longer need to worry about their broker's outside activities. The problem is it allows for that broker then to do kinds of activities that the broker-dealer doesn't know anything about. So for instance, you could have a stockbroker who also formed his own investment advisory firm and that investment advisory activity wouldn't be reported to the broker-dealer. So it's really not a very good idea because there's a lot of room here for the brokers who always had to answer to their broker-dealers who said, yes, you can do this, or no, you can't. Um, you know, as as much as I fight that system on the fiduciary side, there is a system of oversight. And now the proposal is doing away with that. I'm hoping this doesn't really happen, but like everything else right now, I think it's probably more likely to happen than it isn't. So we're going to end with some good news. Um, and the good news is that even though the Department of Labor fiduciary rule is totally dead and buried at this point, even though the SEC's language isn't as hard on the fiduciary um, requirement as I wish it was, the fiduciary conversation is still very much out there. And I've said for a while now, we're going to force this industry into a fiduciary standard with its clients when the clients refuse to work with anybody else. That is the easiest way to move this whole problem forward is for the client to say, no, I'm only going to work with a fiduciary. So Charles Schwab, um, the firm, is actually run by Chuck Schwab, who is Charles Schwab, but always goes by the nickname Chuck. So Chuck has been talking about the need for a fiduciary standard. And I love some of the language that he uses here. And so I'm going to actually read you a couple of quotes from him. And this was when he was um, talking, giving a speech, but these are the words that people need to start hearing says, fundamentally, advice has to be at the highest level of ethics, we could argue, but it has to be at the same level as your doctor. He said he's worried about the fiduciary duty. He's worried about, you know, how we're really constituting what that means and how Americans are having to save for their retirement really involves needing to work with someone who has their best interest at heart. The next quote is something that I've said to people so many times in in versions of it. Charles Schwab says, The responsibility we have for people's savings is awesome. If people are not sophisticated, it is so easy to lead them down an incorrect path. And when we hold that awesome duty of helping people with their money, usually it's their entire life savings. When we can help the public understand that the person who's doing this should be your fiduciary, should be acting in your best interest. Anything can go wrong, but it's an awesome sense of responsibility. And what I'm hoping, I mean, Charles Schwab has been all behind the fiduciary fight from the very beginning. Nothing Nothing but great things coming from them. But I'm hoping that as he talks and as maybe more people hear it, he has a louder microphone than I have. And I'm hoping that as we continue this fight for best interest for the consumer, that the more people we can get to publicly say, this is how it's just got to be, the more likely we are to help the consumer understand it, which will force the industry to change.
0: Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance.
1: Welcome back to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show, and this is the Plan Your Prosperity section. So today, I want to talk about Medicare. And I know that Medicare is... So hard to completely get your arms wrapped around what does it cover, what doesn't it cover, how do you apply. There's some major pieces to Medicare, though, that I want to make sure that you don't make a mistake with. And we're coming into the open enrollment season, so this is a really good time to review and make sure that you're doing everything correctly So I want to start out by talking about the biggest, worst mistake that I see people make with Medicare. Now, remember, Medicare is Part A, Part B, Part D, and then there's some that are um, Medicare Part C plans that are hybrids. Remember that Medicare A is your hospitalization, Medicare B is your physician, Medicare D is your drug, then C is the hybrid, and then there's a Medicare supplement plan. Medicare Part A does not have a premium associated with it that you pay in retirement. Medicare Part A is simply a benefit that you've already paid for. Medicare Part B, however, has a monthly premium that when you start taking Medicare, you start paying your Part B premium. So you're supposed to begin to take Medicare at age 65. And if you retire and um, lose your health insurance from your employer, which most people do today, then they go on Medicare. And so you enroll and you have your Medicare B and you pay your premium, everything is good. You have to be a little bit careful in there that you don't have a gap in coverage. But for most people, they kind of know at 65 what's going on. The thing that happens to people is if they get older than 65 and they continue to work. Now, if you have a gap in coverage, from the time that you had your employer's insurance, which you'd maintain if you were still working, and you decide not to pay for Medicare yet because you really don't need it because you have your employer's coverage. So now you're older than 65 and you're not paying your Part B premium because you're still working. There's nothing wrong with this. It's a very good system. Lots of people aren't retiring at age 65. In fact, it's the easiest way to help ensure you have enough money for retirement. But then if something happens that you lose your coverage at work and you haven't enrolled in Part B, your Part B premiums skyrocket. Why is that? We buy insurance betting that we will need it, and the person who sells us the insurance is betting that we won't or we won't need it for a long time. We are perceiving our risk as higher than the insurance company is perceiving it. So if we don't buy insurance, if we say, okay, well I'm 65 and I'm pretty healthy and I don't need Medicare yet, I don't, I'm don't. i just gonna buy it when I need it. Now suddenly, you wouldn't enter the Medicare system until you started making claims. You need to have the money going into the insurance system to be there to pay for other people's claims as well as then to pay for your own claims when you have them. So Medicare works under the law of large numbers. Lots of people enroll in it, but not everybody uses it at the same level. It's the fundamental reason why insurance works. So if Medicare let you postpone paying B until later, when you actually needed the benefit, then everything would fall apart. They do let you postpone it as long as you have other coverage. But the problem is that gap in coverage once you're older than 65. So if you are older than 65 and you're not working, you need to, during the open enrollment period, always consider where do you think you're going to be over the next year. Do you think you're going to retire halfway through? I'm probably overly conservative, and people um, may—I wish they would write in because I would love to have more mail. But people could write in and say, you're having them spend too much money on insurance. But I would rather you carry two policies for two or three months than have a gap in coverage that causes you to get really hurt. So if you think you're going to retire in a few months, go ahead and apply for your Medicare in time that you know the Medicare is in place before you lose your coverage. You're going to pay a tiny bit more in premium, but at the end of the day, the problem that will happen to your premium is it will become incredibly high. You don't want that. That mistake will cost much more money than having the double insurance. So the next place this can totally fall apart is if your spouse is on your insurance. Sometimes a spouse is a little bit older than the working spouse, but they're covered by the working spouse's insurance. If something happens that that working spouse gets terminated and loses the coverage, well, if the working spouse is under age 65, you know they just don't have insurance, which is a problem, but it's not catastrophic. You don't have that rate increase. If you lose your job and you lose your insurance, and your spouse is over age 65, you need to look to see whether or not your employer offers COBRA insurance. Most employers do. COBRA allows you to continue the health insurance. And so you can have um, months and months of insurance coverage. It's expensive, but you can maintain the coverage. So you apply for COBRA, and then you immediately apply for Medicare, too. It just takes the Medicare application a while to work through the system. So you pay the COBRA coverage on the over 65-year-old spouse, and then you get your own Medicare coverage. If you're over 65 and you lose your job all at once and you lose your insurance, again, that COBRA coverage is what will save you. But I see more issues where the spouse was on um, someone else's insurance, and it causes a bigger problem for some reason. I'm not really sure. I think it might be because when the person is actually working and is aware of it, they think about it a little more. In any case, don't make that mistake. So the next issue is in Medicare supplemental policies, which are great. You buy them and they supplement the coverage that's within the Medicare that you have. Medicare supplements have different kinds of benefits that they offer. The more benefits you have, the more you pay for the policy. So one of the things that I want to make sure that you know is if you have Medicare as your insurance and then you buy a Medicare supplement plan, First of all, all of the letters associated with the plans are the same between carriers. So let's choose a letter that isn't one of the normal Medicare letters. So let's say you've got a Medicare E supplement. I'm not even sure what the E is. Every Medicare E supplement would be the same across carriers. So what you're buying then is the cost and you're buying the quality of the insurer, Because by law, all of those supplement plans with the same letter of coverage have to offer the same benefit. So be aware of that as you're trying to decide what to do. Additionally, Medicare supplement plans don't cover things that Medicare doesn't cover practically always. I've heard a little noise to the edges that there's some new ideas that people are coming out with on some kinds of coverage. But generally, if Medicare doesn't cover it, your Medicare supplement doesn't either. So if you've got a major issue that Medicare doesn't cover, just rushing out and buying a Medicare supplement plan is probably not going to solve your problem. So it's fine to buy the supplement. I think it supplement's a really good idea. But I want you to know what you're buying. And I want you to look at the coverage that that supplement plan offers And make sure it's what you think it is, because the only issue I have with buying any product is not knowing what you're buying. The last mistake that I see people making with Medicare is understanding how much long-term care um, insurance it offers. Medicare will pay for a short-term stay in a full nursing facility following a hospital stay. But it's not a long-term coverage. It depends upon, you have to get in the hospital, it has to be full nursing, and then it's about 60 days of coverage after that. So if you have an issue, like you fall and you break a hip and you have to go into an in-house rehab for a while, it will cover that. If you need nursing care to get over a situation and then you're going to be fine on the other side of it, it'll cover that as well. But it won't cover chronic Once you're chronic, you've got to figure out how you're going to pay for that coverage because Medicare isn't your solution. So many people think it is, but you've got to have something to cover potentially years of nursing home and retirement home assistance, and your Medicare plan isn't going to be the answer.
0: Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance.
1: Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak. And the last questions that I have for you may also involve you looking up this radio show on a podcast. I'm available on CastBox. I'm available on iTunes. It's Ask Peggy Doviak about your finances for the podcast. Because I want to talk to you today about how to read your financial statement. I had a question this last week. Someone, um, I had a call. It's like, I don't know how to read my statement and it is incredibly confusing. So, what I want to give you today—and it'd probably be easier if the statement was in front of you. So, if you can get it real quickly, pulled up on your computer, do that. And otherwise, you might want to listen to the podcast again to to go through it when you're actually looking at it. So, your financial statement is your official record of what's going on in your brokerage account, your IRA, your um, taxable account, your transfer on death account, and actually also your 401k plans at work. But I'm, act- I'm not talking about those because some of those statements, they come once a year. I'm talking more about IRA statements, taxable statements, but the principles should work the same either way. It's not as easy when there isn't a printed out statement. So the first thing I want you to do is look at the date of the statement at the top of the page. So you know what period of time you're looking at. It could be a quarterly statement, it could be a monthly statement, it could be an annual statement. But it's really important that you know what period of time you're looking at. Now on the first page of your statement, there is probably both the return for the period of time of the statement as well as a year to date return. So you can look year-to-date to to see how your account is done. You can look to see how it's done for the last period of time. You should probably be more worried about the year-to-date numbers, especially if you're looking at a monthly statement because there's a lot of variation month-to-month, but still, it's really important to see how it's doing. Then the next major section should show you what holdings you have. There should be a description of what you own, There should be how many shares of it you own and how much it's worth today. Hopefully in this section, you also have the ticker symbol for what you own, so you can look up that ticker symbol and do third-party research to make sure that you really understand what's going on. If it doesn't have a ticker symbol on the statement, call your financial advisor and ask what the ticker symbol is. If it's in like an annuity subaccount and there isn't a ticker symbol, then ask for a descriptive sheet of the holding that your um, insurance agent could send to you so that you can understand it. Then there'll be the page that shows the gain-loss for each of the holdings, and that will probably be for the period of time from when you bought it until the date of the statement. You'll see where you earned dividends and interest. So you have the income that's being kicked off of your um, investments in addition to how much they've gone up in value. So for instance, with a bond fund, you're looking at the interest that it's paying and then on the actual gain or loss of the bond fund, it's probably a much smaller number. So most of the time with the bonds, you're looking at the interest side of it, but it's still important to know what it's doing from a gain loss perspective. Now, here's the page that messes everybody up. When you buy something and you own the investment and so it's in your holding and then you have the cash that you didn't spend, right? Except it's not cash, it's actually money market. The brokerage firms aren't allowed, no, no investment firm is allowed to hold cash in a client account. It always goes in as money market. So if you put cash in, you'll see that number then show as a negative number with a positive number associated with buying the money market funds. It's double entry bookkeeping. Don't let it mess you up. When you sell a position, it'll go to cash. Then you see the cash go out and you see the money market come in. So it's a conversion. Anytime cash comes into your account, it's always converted to money market so that you're holding money market typically by the next day so that there's never a lot of cash in your account for a long period of time. That long list of transactions can get terribly confusing. Basically, you're making sure that everything matches up. That's the part that people don't understand. What you're probably the most interested in is the balance on the first page because how the cash and the money market are moving isn't really impacting the balance of your account. But people see the movement and they think it is. So keep more up with the balance and the gain-loss and the dividends and the interest. And then you can spot check the cash flow movement, but don't let it get you overly confused. So again, I can't believe how fast the show has gone. So remember to um, don't panic a whole lot week to week on the market returns. Remember that it's important to work with a fiduciary. Understand what Medicare covers. Really spend some time understanding this and read your statements. Have a great week. See you next time.
0: Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDowiak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.